Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine. Broadcasting today from Agreco Studios. Agreco, powering the Permian. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we are being joined by Dr. Ian Palmer, continuing the conversation of his recently released book, The Shell Controversy. But first, I'd like to tell you about our recent issue of Shell Magazine, on which our cover is Myrtle Jones, Vice President of Halliburton. This cover is amazing for the fact that we actually got to catch up with Myrtle and talk to her about her role at Halliburton, the years that she's been there, and of course her climb up that ladder. This is the dedication that we normally do once a year for women in our energy sector. Could not have thought of even a better woman to have put on the cover for this issue because she truly has an amazing story. And I was also very proud because as a minority female as well in uh, media and in the energy sector covering uh, energy, it's not that easy to find diversity and inclusion in the workforce period Oil and gas, because it's primarily male dominant, is not an easy task either. So it was a real treat to catch up with Myrtle and hear her story and, of course, learn a lot more about her climb up the corporate ladder at Halliburton. So for more information on Myrtle Jones's cover, please visit shellmag.com. Again, that's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com, and you can read all about her story. And now, David, it's time for us to welcome back on our guest for the second show, Dr. Ian Palmer. Dr. Palmer, welcome back to End the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm glad that you were able to give us a little bit more time. You know, the topics that we had discussed previously in the first segment, uh, your book, The Shell Controversy, you covered a lot of information in it. And I do encourage our listeners to go and grab a book and get it on Amazon because you really are very good about laying out both sides of the story pertaining to oil and gas and the shell controversy. And so I want to get back on the topic. Uh, The previous show, we had a lot of discussion on the environment, the impact it's having, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, back and forth controversy on uh, how much is oil and gas really contributing to uh, climate change and the rhetoric that has gotten to be so loud and people not really having a good understanding of what's really happening. And so I think we have a lot of people that are scared, especially, unfortunately, our children. So let's talk about your book, The Shell Controversy, again, and get into some details about your observation on various natural disasters that have befallen on the continent of Australia in recent years, and most, if not all, of the disasters that have been attributed to by scientists to climate change. Please talk about these impacts and your views of climate change. Mm, that's, a, that's a big question, but yes, I was... <laughs> I was um, I was in Australia. Um, let, let me just preface this, okay, by saying that um, I looked up the numbers recently and was was quite startled. The CO2 uh, concentration in the atmosphere is higher than it's been in three million years. Okay, it's four hundred and 12 or 15 parts per million. Right. They're, they're, they've measured it for, you know, they've been able to deduce the numbers way back then. 
And I wondered about the temperature. The temperature is going up. And so, um, um, and I looked at, uh, I looked at some of the prediction. It, it's not higher than three million years right now, but it's going up rapidly. And um, the models, climate change models, can make predictions of what the temperature will be in 2100. Okay, and I found that it's 4.5 degrees C higher than than um, than now. Okay, mm -hmm. and that if 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 the um, um, greenhouse gases are unabated, you know, if we don't if we don't do anything to control them. Uh, that much of a rise in temperature puts us higher than we've ever been in a million years. Okay, so that means that if the models are right, and that's the question, um, then by, by 2100 AD, the Earth will be entering a period it hasn't been in for one million years. And that was a bit of a startler when I, when I figured that out. Okay, so, okay, we can say that, um, Okay, well, we don't think that um, um, climate change is mattering all that much, but there's a certain uncertainty there in, in right. that fact that the Earth, you know, may be entering, if we don't do anything about it, a place it hasn't been for a million years. That adds some uncertainty that makes us sit up and take notice, okay? So that was, that, that got my attention, and that should get everybody's attention. It depends on the modeling, okay? But the models have been checked out. Um, that, there's a paper, a peer-reviewed paper, that basically says that the, the models, the model predictions over the last 50 years have been, you know, uh, pretty good. Okay? Not perfect, but pretty good. So they're so, pretty accurate, you feel, and, and they're yes. pretty validated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. An example was uh, the famous Exxon modeling, okay, when, when uh, Alexandria in the, in the Congress looked at that and said, you guys, talking to the Exxon people, the scientists, you guys got the prediction right. They, they predicted, you know, what it would be in 2020. And so they, 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 you know, they apparently got the prediction right, and then they shelved it. They put it away because they didn't. And this was from, from the model that they had created way back in the 60s, right? Yes, this was yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, Around yeah. 1960. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they, and so they, this, this paper reports that most of the model, modeling is, is, is pretty good. Um, so uh, anyway, that's one point. Okay, so that's kind of an overall perspective. Okay, so um, back to Australia. <laughs> this is the other end of the spectrum because now we're not talking about theory or uh, analysis. I, I climbed into a, um, a four-wheeler with my brother, and he said, we're going up uh, into the desert into the Flinders Ranges. This is in South Australia. Right. And he took me and he kept saying, oh my gosh. And uh, there were dead kangaroos everywhere. We were driving into the drought. This is the year before last um, that led to the bushfires. We drove right into it. The drought was mostly in Southeastern Australia, Victoria, and New South Wales, but a little bit of it went into South Australia. And we didn't see a blade of green grass in August of 2019, which is the middle of winter. Not, I mean, there was no green grass anywhere. This was a two-year drought, and it was a pretty bad drought. And there was no water anywhere in the creeks, okay? We right. found water in one place, okay? And there were little holes in the sand, 
kangaroos apparently were scratching with their front paws, creating little holes trying to find water. And it, it, it was sad and it made me cry. And so we witnessed that drought firsthand. I left and came back to the USA before the fires took off. The fires took off two months later in October and a billion animals were killed. Right. It was several billion. I mean, and it depends on your definition of animal, but I think it includes lizards and snakes and things mm -hmm. like that. A billion sure. animals yeah. were killed in those fires. So um, um, uh, it's pretty hard to, you know, it's pretty hard not to point the finger at global warming when you're in the middle of it like that. And there were people in uh, Eastern Australia who had to run into the sea to escape the heat. I mean, just amazing stuff. Now, I've got a map in my books of Australia, and it shows in one two-week period the fires all over Australia. And the whole the whole map of Australia was covered by these red right. dots. Right, I remember seeing that myself, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, uh, when when you live in it, um, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty easy to say this looks like. They did a study. They did a, a modeling study, um, peer-reviewed again, that showed that there was more than a 30% chance that global warming was responsible. It's not 90-something percent chance, but it's more than 30%. The model, modeling was limited somehow. So that, that kind of says, well, it's not conclusive, but it points in that direction. Sure. And of course, that's that kind of gets us into where a lot of the points of confusion come about. Because, you know, I mean, in Texas, we had that terrible drought from 2000, really 2007, all the way into 2012. And then we came out of it, and parts of the state remain or have gone back into a drought, kind of in West Texas mostly, and in the Panhandle. Uh, but we came out of it, and and we came out of it just fine. And and you know this year is starting off kind of rainy for us. But but when you when you hear, of course during that time when the drought was going on, the Texas news media was talking about, well we're in a permanent drought. Well we weren't in a permanent drought, right? We came out of it. And, and you would see reports saying, well, this is unprecedented. Well, no, it wasn't in the 50s. Yes. We had an even worse drought when yes. carbon dioxide was what? 200 parts per million, maybe? Uh, a fraction of what it is today. And so that's that's kind of the problem with all of this, isn't it? Is, is, is it's so uncertain, as, as you just said. I mean, it, yeah, we have, we, we have a 30% probability but there's 70% probability that it's not. And so people don't know what to believe. And unfortunately, I think, um, I mean, I, I just don't feel like the news media or our education system really Come. does a very good job of, of making sense of it all. I, I agree. And I, you know, to the, the deniers um, of it, you know, it's both sides. There's just as many scientists that will be on the other side saying this is, the earth is always changing in its climate. And, uh, and kind of makes you wonder, and, and as you said earlier, Dr. Palmer, that 70% um, was inconclusive, 30%. That's not even half. And, and I'm not trying to deny it either. That's not what's happening here. I'm just saying we're trying to get to the bottom of your research, your book, and give some perspective to the listener on uh, you know, how much is really real and how much is really hype. That's why The Shell Controversy is a great book to go pick up. When we get back from break, I want to get on the green uh, Joe Biden's Paris Climate Accord. You're listening to and the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kim Bilotto, wanting to talk to you about how to age gracefully. 
as a woman, my appearance is important to me. It makes me feel good about myself when I feel I'm taking care of myself. And I have been visiting a woman for many years who has helped me with my wrinkles, my skin's elasticity. And you know, a lot of people think it's really just involving women, but it's not. Many, many men also seek treatments as they see the aging process occurring. I visit Cynthia, my friend of many years, who is a master injector for San Antonio Cosmetic Surgery. I feel very comfortable going to her and allowing her to just do her work on me. Pick up the phone, call Cynthia, make an appointment, and see what she can do for you because it has taken years off of me. So if you want a free consultation with Cynthia, give them a call at 210-641-4320. Again, the number is 210-614-4320. Or you can visit their website at sanantoniocosmeticsurgery.net. Be sure to tell them that Kim within the Oil Patch Radio Show sent you. We're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Your host, Kim Pilato, along with my co-host, David Blackman. And we are interviewing Dr. Palmer, whose recent book, The Shell Controversy, we're jumping into it. Dr. Palmer, I want to bring and give you a chance to respond because uh, in the closing last segment, I, I discussed that there's a lot of controversy of what's real and what's not real. So go ahead and finish your final thought on that topic before we move on to uh, the Paris Climate Accord. Yes, thank you, Kim. Um, um, I think there's uh, uh, physical evidence that's pretty conclusive. Um, um, glaciers melting and um, Arctic ice um, disappearing and um, um, corals, bleaching of coral. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty much established. I, I call them physical manifestations Okay, All right. All right. Of, of, of global warming and now, now, when you switch to um, extreme weather events, it gets very confusing, as you kind of alluded to. Okay. For example, uh, Gregory Wrightstone has written a book uh, called um, um, Facts, you know, um, of Climate Change. Right. And he has some very good graphs in there that show the trends of uh, wildfires, droughts, um, hurricanes and tropical storms. That's what we call extreme weather events. Okay, and those those trends do not show worsening trends over 50 years. I think this is um, this is a, an Achilles heel for the, um, the climate movement yeah. because it does not show these things getting worse and worse and worse. Okay. Um, on the other hand. Um, the last 10 years has been the hottest 10 years ever. And that brings us to Australia, the wildfires, and California, the wildfires, and the hurricanes. This year we had a record year of hurricanes, excuse me, last year, record year of hurricanes, I think. 30. I know, I went through two of them. <laughs> right. So you're back to the uncertainty again. So it's like, okay, so the trends over 50 years don't show the worsenings, but my gosh, it looks like it is worsening right now. And so somebody needs to, um, to plot out um, the graphs in uh, Wrightstone's book only go up to 2016, I think. And so one of, one of the things on my list is to plot out the, 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 these things that I mentioned, hurricanes, wildfires, et cetera, 
through 2020 to see if there is an uptick because it looks like this is added to the uncertainty. And I, I, I think, I'm, I'm guessing that Gregory would say, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, we don't see the worsening trends, but, you know, in the last few years, you know, things have kind of worsened. It looks like things yeah. are worse. So yeah. uh, we're back to the uncertainty again. So there's very good physical evidence, but as far as extreme weathers, I think it's a mistake to say, oh my gosh, this is the worst hurricane we've had for some time. It must be global warming. I, I, I would not say that at all. And that's what David, David just said. And I agree with you, David. Yeah, yeah. And of course, 2016 was right in the middle of that decade long lull in hurricane activity. Uh, which, as you as you just said, has has sped up here over the last few years. Um, so let's so we have that you know anecdotal evidence, physical evidence, uh, horrible stuff happening in in Australia as we've we've all been aware. Um, so we now have a new president who, on his first day in office, uh, recommitted the United States to the Paris Climate Accords, um, which we talked about a little bit uh, in the first show we did together last week. Um, so. So here we are, we're gonna be back in in the United States. Uh, we've already met a lot of our goals here in the US under that accord. But talk about, I think it's important for our audience to know, first of all, how are the accords structured? Um, and you know what the United States envision role in the accords really is. Uh, and we'd love to have your views on that. Yes. Um, um... We, we committed to reduce the um, um, carbon dioxide, the greenhouse gases by, I think it was um, 25% by 2030. And I think we've succeeded. I think we've, we've reduced um, the emissions by 17%, I think. So- Here in the United um, States. Right, in, this is just in, in, in the USA. And that's been voluntary as well. Um, correct. A lot of it is voluntary. That's correct. A big, a big, a big chunk of it is uh, power stations changing over from uh, from burning coal to uh, burning gas, yeah. and and that of course is uh, partly because gas was cheap because of the success of the shale revolution. Right. So um, we've been very fortunate in that. There's 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 many other successes of that that have benefited society. Uh, even including you know, cheap gas for, for our cars, you know, trucks, etc., as as well as America's um, um, commitment there with reducing greenhouse gases, um, there was also a commitment to uh, to fund um, to add to the general fund. I think three billion dollars. Okay, and I think we added two billion, and then the Trump administration came in and that stopped. Okay, because we got out of the we got out of the Paris Agreement then, but but also to um, to help. Part of that is to help less you know fortunate countries, poorer countries, who are more vulnerable. The poorer countries are definitely more vulnerable to climate change effects. Right. Okay, and so um, uh, because we're one of the richest, perhaps the richest country in the world, so we can't afford to, to help them out. And I think we should. I think there's a there's right. kind of a worldwide, you know. Right. Kind of well, we're all in, we all live on one planet. You're absolutely right. Yes. Dr. Palmer, hold that thought. We have to take a hard break real quick. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. 
Hi folks, Alvin Bailey here. Did you know Agreco is proud to sponsor In the Oil Patch Radio Show? Agreco has served Texas oil fields for over 10 years, supporting producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. They service everything from pump jacks with a single 200 kilowatt unit to massive gas processing facilities requiring 50 megawatts or more. Agreco is your dedicated engineering partner for diesel and natural gas generators as well as battery power solutions. Call Agreco today at 1-800-AGRECO. That's 1-800-A-G-G-R-E-K-O. Do you know what artificial intelligence can do for your operation? It's probably time to find out. With Aspen Tech Software, your business can harness the full power of AI to achieve new levels of performance. Aspen Tech's leading-edge solutions are a critical part of the world's largest oil and gas, chemical, and engineering companies, helping them improve safety, sustainability, reliability. Drawing on decades of industry experience, Aspen Tech is using AI, machine learning, and predictive analytics to help companies digitally optimize the design, operation, and maintenance of their facilities. Find out how Aspen Tech can help you win tomorrow with the technology of today. Learn more at www.aspentech.com forward slash AI. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Dr. Ian Palmer, author of an amazing book called The Shell Controversy. Very interesting book in which, uh, Dr. Palmer, you do cover both sides of the uh, spectrum on the controversy of shale uh, and climate change. So let's get back on that. Um, David had asked you a question about the Paris Climate Accord. Joe Biden, one of his first executive orders was to... um, put us back into it. And you were telling us about um, why we need to help less fortunate countries, more poverty-stricken countries. They tend to be more vulnerable. And I want to get back on that conversation with you as well. So so the United States and uh, is, is basically helping other countries um, in the Paris Climate Accord. That's what they're uh, doing, uh, committing more resources and dollars, correct? Yes, yes. And yes. what else are they, and, uh, what else is it covering? Um, well, one of the um, um, the points raised is, well, um, um, and, and President Trump raised this, is that uh, China isn't doing its bit, isn't doing right. And that's a pretty good, pretty good point because Do China, they ever? No. <laughs> they, 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 they don't. Sorry. You know, they don't. China produces twice as much. Um, greenhouse gases, as the U.S. does. They produce the most in the world. So, um, but here's where um, um, per capita comes into it. If, if, you, uh, if you calculate the, the, um, the amount per capita, then the U.S. is, you know, spending, uh, I mean, em- emitting twice as much per capita, per unit of population, than China is. And so, you're back to the rich countries versus the poor countries, okay? So it's a bit of a philosophical argument. As you said so nicely, uh, we live in the world. We should be helping the rest of the world. So there's there's two kind of, uh, I could, uh, uh, maybe they're both philosophic. One, one is the uncertainty of climate change as far as uh, weather extremes, which affect 
humanities and migrations, you know, displaced people due to sea level rising, for example. Okay, then, then um, the other one is how, you know, is, is the philosophic idea of a very rich country like us providing technology and, and for example, um, a carbon capture and storage, CCA, right. the underground storage, which, which I, I, I have a, a lot of faith in that. I think that's going to, you know, go. And we, we have, we know about that, okay? Uh, and we can share that with other countries. So, uh, again, it's, I'm, 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 I'm presenting kind of a balanced view here, I guess. Um, yes. But because of the uncertainties, I, I, I think the risk is a little bit too high to do nothing. That's my own personal opinion. Ian, can, can we talk about CCS for a minute, carbon capture and storage? Just yes. kind of, you know, I know you go into it in your book. Talk about kind of the fundamentals of how that works. And, you know, we have a mainly Texas audience. Kind of relate that to the opportunity we have in Texas to play a major role in that. Yes, yes, we do. Yes, yes. And uh, um, we tried real hard to make that work, at least Texas did. And a, a Petronova was the name of the... Um, project and it was funded by the DOE I think they put in a million dollars the DOE Department of Energy and it was and that I was actually it, during the Bush administration correct 12 14 years was, ago it started then I think but no yeah, it finished yeah. under Trump because the okay. um, um, who was the governor of Texas that was right Perry Perry, Perry, yes. Perry was the head of the DOE and he tried really right, hard right. He, he said it's like trying to get jello to stick on the wall that's what he said <laughs> he, he was talking about Petronova because Petronova was where they injected CO2 from a power, power station, okay? They, they had a, a, a fancy way of capturing it, and then they injected it into, into an old oil reservoir, okay? The oil production went up uh, by 10 times, I think. It was very good. Um, and so technically, it was, it was a good success. But meanwhile, over the years that they set this up, the price of oil went down from $100 to $50 a barrel, and they couldn't make a profit with that. And so you're back to the situation again in this particular case. Um, uh, if this were to continue, you'd need government subsidy or tax credit or something. Okay. Dr. Palmer, I yes. hate to do this again. We're up against a hard break. When we come That's back, right. we're going to cover okay. carbon capture and storage. You're listening to on the Oil Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. Remember this name, Oil Field Experts, to locate any part, any time for your automotive or oil field equipment needs. Oil Field Experts' specialty is those hard-to-find oil field parts for your fleet maintenance needs, and we've been providing those parts and accessories to keep your tools turning since 1965. From the auto repair shop to the pump jack, call us for the right part right now. Write down this number, Oil Field Experts, 210-471-1923. Again, that's 210 210- Four seven one one nine two three, and visit us on the web at theoilfieldexperts.com. And we're back. You're listening to an Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Ian Palmer, Dr. Ian Palmer recent author of a book called The Shell Controversy. And boy, it is uh, controversial in many ways, and this is what we are covering today on our show. Dr. Palmer, before the break, um, David Blackman got us on a discussion pertaining to Texas and carbon capture storage, which is a very big buzzword right now. 
and we see a lot of a potential in the future. Let's get back on that topic. You were discussing how at the time Governor Rick Perry was uh, the Department of Energy Secretary under the Trump administration and was trying to make headway here in Texas. I'd like you to pick back up that conversation. Okay, the bottom line was that um, uh, they were trying to, uh, under Rick Perry, uh, they were trying to make um, coal uh, power plants work. They were trying to find a way that they could be profitable and work. And, and uh, if the oil price is down near 50 where it is now, uh, it doesn't work. And so it was mothballed, as, as I understand. Now, um, I think um, that doesn't mean that carbon capture and storage is not good, okay? Because I think that means that trying to burn coal, uh, that's a tough sell because coal is uh, the dirtiest of fuel. And so uh, so back to carbon, um, the U.S. government has put a lot of money in this, a lot of R&D money. And here's the bottom line, okay? There's enough capacity for a geological storage um, in, in the USA to, uh, to take to take all of our annual emissions from the USA, which is 6 billion uh, tons per annum, uh, and to store it underground, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm stepping away from cost for the moment, okay? That means that we could store uh, one half, uh, uh, did I say for 20 years? For 20 years, we could store uh, 6 billion uh, uh, tons uh, a, a year in, in, in our own storage, uh, geological storage, okay? If we, if we only stored half uh, of our emissions, that would take us 40 years. If we only stored a quarter, that would be 80 years. So we have tremendous storage, you know, uh, tremendous scope here. And this is the, and as well as the technology. The technology, of course, oil companies have been doing uh, EOR, enhanced oil recovery, for decades. And so we know, we, we know how to do it, okay? We know, um, we have the staff, you know, uh, who know the experimental detail. Right. You pump CO2 down there, it softens up the oil, and so the oil flow increases, so you produce more oil. The, 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 the big question is, Okay, that that uh, um, companies like Oxy are doing that all the time. He said just this week, I think that he he's storing Oxy is storing. She Vicky Holm is storing more carbon dioxide than Tesla is saving from from the new electric cars. And I thought that was a interesting statement to make. Okay, so um, uh, so carbon capture without um, producing oil. Someone has to pay for it, okay? The cost is too much, okay? So the government has to provide tax credits or subsidies or something, okay? But the point is, as Robert Balk said, um, uh, he studied this, um, that, that the scale uh, of this thing is enough to uh, satisfy the Paris Accords. In other words, we may have to build tens of thousands of these, um, these carbon capture storage underground. But but we you know we can do this across the world so long as we just so Ian, just so so people understand the mechanics of that is it one of the biggest opportunities uh, really here in Texas in depleted oil reservoirs yes in conventional yes. sands basically not in yes. shale clays but in the sands yeah. where the yeah. oil has been mostly produced and so you have these big underground potential storage areas for the for the carbon dioxide 
Yes, exactly. They're, 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 I think uh, Robert Hawk said, uh, and he's from New Mexico Tech, that there are a hundred um, um, uh, sites that could be doing this, um, um, injecting CO2, EOR sites, um, but only, I think he said, uh, uh, less than 10 of them are working because of the shortage of CO2. Okay, right. they've been using natural CO2 that they, they find from New Mexico. Okay, so all, all we have to do is maybe oversimplifying is that there's lots of places, uh, steel mills, for example, ethanol plants produce CO2, as well as power stations. We just have to corral the CO2, and then we have to inject it. And, and so this can be done. It's going to require some extra money to do it. But this is, I think this is the way forward, and this is something we can share with the rest of the world. Well, that sounds promising. It also sounds like a lot of jobs here in Texas. Let's switch gears and talk yes. about NAS NASDAQ recently reported that China's coal output hit an all-time high during 2020 and shows no signs of abating. How consistent is that with any plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions since we were talking about the Paris Climate Accord and uh, China once again? Um, tell, tell us your thoughts on on. How do we um, bring China into some kind of a, a court? Yes, I can I can address that. Um, at, at, in China, the historical fuel has been uh, coal, of course. I mean, for, for and they're bringing new plants on in in record amounts. They're they're adding new yes, coal plants yes, in yes, record yes. amounts. Well, um, uh, that that that's that's because they they only became industrialized. What was it after 1970? I think in the right. 80s is when that began okay and so this is a continuation of that they, they tend to they tend now but recently because of this uh, the, the the middle class people have protested you know protested because of the pollution that coal right. Right. coal is in the air okay not not this not the uh, emissions the greenhouse gas emissions but the pollution and so the government is changing they're importing huge amounts of LNG okay from Australia which has a lot of LNG and from the, now from the USA you know we started exporting LNG because gas is cheap again the shale gas success and that will help because LNG burns um, uh, uh, twice as clean as coal or half as dirty as coal and so things I think will start to change but uh, uh, as Daniel Jurgen says it takes a long time to change over from you know one system of energy to another Okay, so it, it is happening and it will continue. And I think this is one of the reasons why China said, hey, hey, we'll, we'll jump on the net zero, um, you know, a, a commitment, Carbon, yeah. but we'll do it by 2060 instead of 2050. I would have been happy if they'd said 2050, which most other countries are saying. Right. And, you know, Dr. Palmer, your book, The Shell Controversy, you're kind of laying out the controversy, which is if we had not had shale, and all this plentiful natural gas, which is what seems to be the bridge into where we are, uh, you know, uh, where would we be and would we be able to lower the emissions? We get back from break. It's going to be our last segment. And we do want to talk about the future of oil and gas. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. The vision of the Women's Energy Network is to be the premier organization that educates, attracts, retains, and develops professional women working across the value chain. Also known as WEN, our mission is to develop programs that provide networking opportunities and foster career and leadership development of women who work in the energy industry. Thousands of women are breaking ground in energy industry careers every year, and 4,000 of them are already members of the Women's Energy Network across our 14 chapters. Members receive exclusive access to 
to mentoring, job boards, group discussions, member-only networking events, expert speaking engagements, and more. If you'd like more information, go to womensenergynetwork.org slash South Texas or call 855-390-0650. We're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Dr. Palmer, author of The Shell Controversy. And David, I know you have a question on our last segment for uh, Dr. Palmer. Go right ahead. Yes. Well, Ian, you, you, you mentioned LNG exports to China uh, in the last segment, and, I, and that's actually kind of where we wanted to go next with this. Um, exports, not just LNG, but also crude oil exports, have played such a huge role in facilitating the boom in shale, oil and gas here in the United States, really over the last decade, but uh, with crude oil just over the last five or six years. As we look out into the future and and how the shale business in this country will continue to evolve, do you see the export side of this playing, uh, you know, continuing to play such a big role or do you see it diminishing over time? That's a curly one. Not, <laughs> I haven't heard so, that. That's a curly I'll, one. <laughs> I'll, I'll take I'll take a pot shot at it. So, um, we we like pot shots on in the old uh, country. Uh, the, the, uh, um, I, I, I'm I was intrigued when I wrote the book. Uh, I found out that Australia was the biggest LNG exporter yeah. um, due to carbon, um, carbon methane, David, and um, and uh, the Northwest Shelf. Okay, lots of lots of. LNG to, to Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, uh, the other one was um, uh, Qatar, I think, was the other Qatar, top. Yes. Uh, the U.S., I think, is third now. Okay, right. so the U.S. has come a long way, um, you know, uh, since, since the shale revolution. And so uh, I, that, that's, uh, I can't see that not continuing with, with places like China that, are, that, that I think are now starting to realize they have to replace coal. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, I think that I think LNG. I'm not so sure about oil, but I think LNG will be a, a good future for the USA as far as exports go. Um, well, of course, now, with oil. Now, uh, oh, go ahead. It, it was just about Europe. EU is a little different because um, uh, they are, let's say, um, deeper into renewables than the US is, and. Um, uh, um, um, and, and so they, they may not want to take, I, I understand that there's a bit of a controversy now about, about importing LNG, you know, from the USA. Right. And because, you know, they, they're at the point that Australia is where they're saying, um, why do we need gas as a halfway house? Okay, why don't we just go straight from coal power stations to uh, renewables? And that's a, that's an interesting question. And Australia did that. If I could divert just a little bit and mention South Australia, because sure, I was sure. there when this happened, I put it in the book. But South Australia closed down their one um, their coal mining and, and their coal power station. They closed that down in one year, and they were building power uh, wind farms like crazy. And so they. They, they uh, weren't producing much gas, very little gas, no shale gas, okay, uh, for various reasons. And so they jumped straight to renewables, um, okay? They had no backup from um, 
gas power stations, okay? And a couple of things broke. Uh, a, a mini tornado came through, a mini hurricane, uh, and knocked over uh, 20 of their towers, their electrical towers, and the whole state shut down. The whole state of South Australia went into blackout for 24 hours. I was scheduled to have dinner with some friends at a hotel, and I said, well, that takes care of that. They found a way to call me, and they said, we're going. And, and uh, we had a meal in the hotel, and, and there was a certain amount of camaraderie, you know, misplaced probably, <laughs> but that's what happens, situations like that. We drove home at pitch black. The only lights anywhere were car lights, very, very occasional. It was like the end of the world, okay? And the bottom line is they went, they didn't have a backup. They didn't think, plan enough to have a backup. So what they did since then, that was 2016, uh, they've, they've put in a big battery built by Tesla 50 miles from my hometown in South Australia. And that's the backup and that's working very, very well. So it, it's just interesting story. No shale gas, no cheap gas. Gas has always been expensive. Gasoline is expensive, okay? Four times as much as it is here to, to put in your car. And, uh, but you've got to have a backup. You've got to have, if you want to go that quickly, and I think they went, clearly they went too quickly, but, but uh, the price now of uh, solar and wind has come down, and batteries, batteries have come down a lot in recent years, so that this now becomes a possible switchover from coal in China to renewable. Dr. Palmer, let me switch gears uh, in our last few minutes we have with you. The future. Do you have um, any idea of, um, I mean, obviously we, we don't know where shell gases go in the formation and stuff with, with renewables and carbon capture. It'll be interesting to see the future. What do you have planned in the way of, uh, what do you have in the works? Do you have any more books, um, future endeavors? Um, will we see more coming out from you as well on more books to continue the shell controversy saga, if you will? I've written four books, and uh, it's nice to take a break because I work <laughs> on the shale controversy. And what, what, um, what motivates me a lot now is something you said, Kim, about uh, presenting a balanced view. And I hope I've done that today because uh, the shale revolution was fantastic in, in, in its success, you know, for, for the average person here and for, for, for really moving millions of people into the middle class. You know, the oil and gas has, has done that for years and years. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by wanting, motivated by wanting to present both sides of the story. And, and uh, I, I tried really hard to do that in the book. And, and I've tried, I, I see both sides and I see the uncertainties. And so on the one hand, the shale revolution, phenomenal success, really only in the USA, the rest of the world, you know, hadn't been really been too successful yet. On the other hand, there are enough uncertainties in the predictions and in, and, and in you know, how the earth is behaving, um, you know, with glaciers melting and everything and, and the recent earthquake, uh, not earthquakes, but uh, storms and, uh, and wildfires, uh, that um, there's enough uncertainty that I, I, I don't think we should be shutting the door. I think, I think some in the U.S. have perhaps shut the door a little bit too tightly about global warming and climate change. I think the Europeans are a little bit ahead, and uh, I think I think they're, you know, they're 
they're showing some wisdom there. A, a BP, you know, you know about BP, you know, switching over to 40% renewables by 2030. And the Total is, is just this week is, is buying an Indian company and they're going to own 50% of their uh, uh, solar voltaic. And right. so we're definitely you know, companies in Europe are moving. And right. so I'm, I'm, that's, that's where my future interest is in, 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 in this and presenting a balanced side of the story. Well, Dr. Palmer, on behalf of David and myself, thank you for giving us two shows and helping us uh, dissect your book, The Shell Controversy. People can go and get your book on Amazon uh, or audiobooks. I'm sure they have it there as well. Thank you once again for coming on the show. We look forward to having you back. If you have any more movement or if you have another book, please feel free to let us know and come back on the show. Yes, and thank you very much. I appreciate uh, you, you, you uh, challenging me with the questions. and. Uh, <laughs> your open-mindedness to look at the, you know, this, the, the, the both sides of the story. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Palmer. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.